Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A quick listener note. This podcast contains adult language and descriptions of violence. I am Charles Raven's ex-girlfriend and also the mother of his child. The only thing that I can bring to the table is the way that he treated me, which I guess I could give you some insight to who he was before this crime happened. Carrie Ann Wright met Charles Raby in the mid-80s at an apartment complex in Houston where a friend of hers lived. They were both teenagers back then. And the only thing she could bring to the table now, she told us, was how Charles treated her before the crime that would send him to death row. As you can probably tell, our connection with Carrie Ann was a bit spotty. I met him just in, you know, the, on the grounds of the apartment uh, one day. And, uh, you know, a bunch of kids unsupervised, you know, had kind of had the freedom to kind of do whatever they want. And we just sort of kind of took a liking to each other pretty much right, right away. It was a volatile relationship. During the penalty phase of Charles's trial, where the jurors had to decide whether to sentence him to life or death, Carrie Ann was almost certainly the most damaging witness. She's aware of the DNA and blood evidence that point away from Charles as being responsible for Edna Franklin's murder. None of that matters to her. As probably the single person that knows him better, than anybody did back then, even than his own mother. Just know that if you're beaten down a path to try and prove this man's innocent, you are wrong. You are wrong. From The Intercept, I'm Liliana Segura. I'm Jordan Smith. Welcome back to Murderville, Texas. Episode 8, Memories. Early on in our reporting, we knew that we needed to try to reach Carrie Ann. All these years later, she is still unsparing in her view of Charles. She left Houston almost two decades ago. She's married, has kids and grandkids. Her life seems genuinely happy. Charles represents a dark and ugly chapter from her past. Anytime these memories come up, they're kind of something that I have to remind myself to think past, like, you know, get your mind out, out of that, that time frame and bring it, bring it to, you know, the happier parts of my life. Carrie Ann was 13 when she met Charles, who everybody called Buster. He was 15. At first, he was charming, but things quickly changed. Not long into their relationship, she said he turned violent yelling at her and flying off the handle, as she testified back in 1994. This led to pushing and shoving, then slapping, and things like that, she said. The amount of violence that would come out of him from a look, from a sigh, uh, it didn't matter. 
She was 15 when she got pregnant. Her relationship with Charles did not improve. It didn't calm him down. It didn't. I'm sure, you know, there were moments when he would be excited about being a dad and, you know, really liked the idea of it all, but it didn't make him a better partner to me. And after their daughter was born, she said the abuse continued. She told us a story that she'd told at trial. It was winter, and their daughter was just a few months old. I was sitting on the fold-out couch with Amber, bundled up with her, trying to keep her warm. And he was standing next to a dresser, and he said, can you give me a pair of socks? And I looked at him and I said, you're standing at the dresser, get them. And there was a knife on top of the dresser, and he grabbed the knife and threw it across the room at me. And I, and I tucked the baby and turned my head, and the knife stabbed me right in the head and stuck in my head. In your head? Stuck in my head. If you didn't catch that, Carrie Ann said that Charles threw a knife at her after she told him to get himself a pair of socks. On the stand, Carrie Ann described what he'd thrown as a multi-tool, like you use for camping. It had a can opener on it and a fork and spoon. It was chrome in color. According to Carrie Ann, she left Charles for good in 1989 after he'd gone to jail for getting in a fight with his mom and stepdad. She'd met another boy whose family took her in. He'd gone to jail, and it was it was my way out. I I thought this is it. You know, I I I've got to I've got to wait. In legal filings, Charles's lawyers describe the circumstances of the breakup a bit differently. They say Carrie Ann actually left Charles before the fight that sent him to jail. And that Charles spent some months taking care of their daughter on his own, with the help of his mother, Betty. Regardless, it was while Charles was in jail for the fight with his mom and stepdad that he met Mary Alice Gomez, who has a very different story about Charles. He was loving and caring with her, and her baby. We've thought about this a lot. This isn't a question of who you believe. They're not mutually exclusive experiences. Abusive relationships often have a honeymoon period, where an abuser is charming and lavishes attention. Could that be what Charles was doing with Mary Alice? Sure, it's possible. But it's also possible that theirs was an entirely different relationship. No one, not even Charles, has denied that he had a violent streak. And knowing what we know about intimate partner violence, it isn't surprising that Carrie Ann told us she felt lucky to get out of that relationship alive. But none of this means that Charles killed Edna Franklin. And there's no physical evidence to show that he did. But the way that Charles behaved toward Carrie Ann and others is precisely why people think that he's guilty. It's maybe an obvious point, but an important one. If Charles hadn't had a reputation as a violent jerk, Edna Franklin's grandsons, Eric Benj and Lee Rose, wouldn't have been so quick to name him as a suspect. In our experience, this is often the case, in some form or another, with wrongful convictions. Almost everyone we've ever written about had something in their background that either put them on law enforcement's radar 
or gave them some kind of negative reputation. These are the kinds of things that can drive cases. We also know that Charles wasn't the only one among the group of kids that Eric and Lee ran with who was violent, including toward their girlfriends. So if you consider Charles's behavior as the key to singling him out as the most capable of killing Franklin, then he wasn't the only suspect the police should have considered. Can you maybe describe kind of how you know Charles and and like what what growing up around him was like? <laughs> um, well, it was it was it was an adventure. I'll give it that. There was never a dull moment. He was actually probably my closest and best friend at the time, and um, you know we went through a lot of things together, so to speak. That's James Jordan. Charles's friend from childhood. He lived at the same apartment complex as Carrie Ann's friend. James was the person Charles was hanging out with when he met Carrie Ann. James has been in and out of prison for most of his life. When we talked to him, he'd just gotten out months earlier. He was having a rough time getting back on his feet. Right after he was released, he came down with COVID and was super sick. But he was open to talking with us and gave us some insight into Charles's problems as a teenager. Man, Charles was, um, he was a very angry young man. He was a handful because he had problems that, he had problems that he hadn't addressed, you know, that I guess made him like a, a little Roman candle, huh? But if he was your friend, you know, there was, there was probably nothing he would ever do for you. As James describes it, Charles seemed to be something of a walking contradiction. Charles did beat up Carrie Ann, he said. But James also said that when he was violent towards his own girlfriend, Time Martin, Charles would intervene. Time remembers this, too. Yeah, yeah, he was always a a helpful ham when it came to being around James Jordan, having issues with him. So, yes, he was very helpful to me in many ways in, in certain times. It, man, everything's just so long ago, but he was, um, you know, kind of the defender. But, you know, I don't think that was so much the case with, with Carrie Ann. You know, I don't, I don't remember them having a very good, good relationship. It's like Charles tried to protect people in certain situations. But it made him controlling. James told Charles's lawyer, Sarah Frazier, that Charles disapproved of hard drugs and would beat him up over it. Once, Charles attacked me when he found me sniffing paint, he said. And then there's the story about the sunflower seeds, which Carrie Ann told on the stand. She said Charles once beat up James for eating sunflower seeds— because he was concerned that they were bad for James's blood pressure. It's not to say that he was a dangerous individual, but he's somebody you, you really wouldn't want to get on his bad side in anger because uh, he didn't have a problem showing you how he felt or telling you how he felt. You know, he was a little bit outspoken. So, but he was a great guy. If he was your friend, he was a great guy. Ultimately, Charles's behavior took a toll on the people he knew. 
And they basically lined up to testify against him during the punishment phase of his trial. But the whole neighborhood testified against him. I was probably one of the only ones that didn't. And um, even though I was subpoenaed, it was against my will, you know. And I never got on stand against him. But everybody else we knew did. And do I believe that he, he killed that lady? No, I don't. We asked James if he remembered where he was when Edna Franklin was murdered. I was in jail, and I seen it on the news. And I told myself then, you know, if you get it, you deserve to fucking die. But if you're innocent, then, you know, I pray to God that you come home. And I told him that. I, I, when I got out of jail, I came and seen him. You know, and um, he didn't have the face of somebody who had just killed uh, a 72-year-old lady. When James went to visit Charles in jail, not long after Franklin's murder, he said Charles just didn't have the face of a killer. That may be how James saw it, but it wasn't how others saw it, including James's mom, who also testified against Charles. She said Charles had hit her once after she caught him and Carrie Ann in her home without her permission. James disputes his mom's account. He said he'd told them they could hang out there, but his mother didn't like that and threatened to call the cops. James says that she hit her head on the wall when Charles tried to push past her to get out of the house. Many of the people who testified about Charles's violent streak remain convinced of his guilt. Yet, According to James, the DNA evidence pointing to another killer disturbed his mom. That's the first time I see my mother crying. You know, because, you know, it's just a bitter pill to swallow. To think that you might have, might have helped put somebody on death row that is innocent. And there's another reason James questions Charles's guilt. It's because of a guy named James Falcon. They met in the Harris County Jail. I didn't know James, but we had gotten cool in jail because he was from the same neighborhood I'm from. And, you know, uh, conversations started up and, um, you know, who do you know? Who's this? Who's that? Oh, yeah, you know, you know how it goes. And uh, Charles' name came up. Falcon told James that he'd seen Charles the night that Franklin was murdered. He had told me, you know, I, yeah, I seen Buster. And he, he was drunk, but he didn't have blood on him. He didn't look like he'd been fighting. He didn't look like he'd been doing anything he shouldn't have been. And, you know, I tried to encourage him to, to seek out Charles' lawyer. When when she went to look for him, when Sarah went to look for him, you know, she told me that he had, he had passed away. We didn't know who Falcon was, so we wrote to Charles to ask. Charles knew Falcon, but wasn't friends with him. Falcon was actually friends with Carrie Ann's brother, so it's not like he had any reason to help Charles. Charles told us that he didn't remember seeing Falcon that night. 
but he said that Falcon had written him a letter in which he, quote, swore up and down that he'd seen Charles. Despite the fact that James Jordan was Charles's best friend, he said that Charles's trial lawyers never talked to him to see what he might know. If they had, maybe they could have tracked down Falcon. It seemed like another missed opportunity. James knows that Charles had anger issues. But he also thought that the witnesses who testified against him overstated things on the stand. They basically got up there and just either either told lies or told things about him that it's normal for for kids to do when, you know, you're you're angry or you're running the streets or, you know, um, not doing the things that productive growing children do. James said this included Carrie Ann. But a lot of things she probably said about him were probably true. The rest of it, hey, you know how it goes in court. They coach you along, tell you what they want you to say. It's not about your guilt or your innocence in Texas. It's hell to be fucking poor and broke in Texas. And it's all about who puts on the best show. You know, when you got somebody, when you got somebody, you, you, you're getting ready to juice up on that gurney, why wouldn't you want to know the truth? Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When we started going through the files in Charles's case, we were struck by how many documents there were from Child Protective Services, Texas's Child Welfare Agency. There were hundreds and hundreds of pages. And they're really hard to read, but also illuminating. They paint a picture of a person whose childhood was shaped by violence and neglect. Charles lived with his mother and grandmother, both of whom had mental health problems. His mother had a series of dysfunctional relationships. Charles was abused and abusive. From the time he was pretty young, he was repeatedly removed from home and shipped off typically to a group home or wilderness camp. Charles really didn't want to talk about any of this with us, especially anything about his mom. He made clear early on that this stuff was off limits. This wasn't surprising. Almost every death penalty case we've ever written about contains some level of childhood trauma or abuse. Violent family situations are extremely painful to revisit. So a lot of times, people just don't want to talk about it, even where it could provide important context that helps others understand how they ended up where they did. 
out of all the cases I've had, Charles's is probably the one I remember most. As we read through Charles's files, one name kept popping up. A guy who worked for child welfare and was one of Charles's caseworkers. My name is Jeffrey Page. Uh, I, in 1982, I began working for Harris County Children's Protective Services. I worked in a specialized unit, an institutional unit, which dealt with kids who had, you know, emotional problems and had to be institutionalized all over the state. And that is how I came into contact with Charles. Page's job was to try to reunite children with their families. And if that couldn't be done, to seek a termination of parental rights. You know, Charles, he had he had to be removed from his home. It was a neglectful supervision. Page really liked Charles. I really connected with, you know, him because I, I felt like, you know, if he only had a chance, maybe he would he could do better. But in the environment he lived in, I said he really doesn't have a chance. And it was it was very sad. He put in a lot of work trying to find a safe place for Charles to live. But Charles frequently ran away, always trying to get back to Houston, to his mom. After months of work, Page thought he'd found the right spot for Charles. He ended up at a place, uh, and I'm cutting through months, but he ended up at a place called New Horizons in Goldway, Texas. And I know he didn't necessarily like it there, but that was probably the best place for him because they treated him well. He had a horse. He really kind of straightened up. He had problems there. Don't get me wrong. I placed him there and I said, oh, this isn't going to work because he's a city boy. And when I came back up there uh, three months later, he was a cowboy. He had his boots on and he had his horse and he really liked, you know, there were things he really liked. And he told me that he liked it there. Charles had a girlfriend at New Horizons and a teacher who'd finally taught him to read. Then Paige was told that the folks there were ready to send him home. Paige did not think he was ready. I told him, I said, I think he needs to stay here. But one day I get a call and they're like, well, he's well. He needs to be brought back to Houston. I said, that's the worst place you could ever bring him back to. He cannot come back here. And I told my supervisor, I told my supervisor's supervisor, because I was very concerned about that. And I told them if he came back here, he was going to get into some trouble. He'd either be killed or he would kill somebody. To Paige, it was a turning point for Charles. Paige finally saw Charles thriving. And at that moment, Charles was sent back to Houston. He needed stability. And that's why I wanted him to stay where he was. He needed a job. He needed somebody to at least tell him what he, you know, which way to go. He never had that. He never had that. And um, that was, you know, maybe the saddest thing about him because I could, I could see him working on a ranch 
Uh, I could see him married and with a family, but uh, it wasn't to be. And part of that, you know, you can't just blame everybody else. He has some responsibility in that too. But like I said, the, the deck was stacked against him. We asked Paige what he meant when he said that Charles might kill or be killed. Paige said that it wasn't that he thought Charles had it in him to go out and kill someone, but that without structure, he had impulse control problems. I grew up uh, in a pretty rough, I grew up in Detroit, and I knew people like him, and uh, I said, something's going to happen to him if nobody intervenes. So I, I just knew he was headed for trouble. But uh, I don't know. Did I did I think he was uh, a murderer? No, I didn't think that. I didn't think he would think things through. I just thought something might happen. Page was called to testify by the defense during the sentencing phase of Charles's 1994 trial. But he told us that Charles's lawyers didn't prepare him before putting him on the stand. So he wasn't able to fully describe the trauma and neglect Charles had lived through in his youth. They put me on the stand. The uh, attorney said, uh, do you know him? And I said, yes, Charles. They just asked me stuff. They never asked me what I thought they were going to ask me. The questions were just weird, he told us. And under cross-examination, it seemed like the prosecutor, Roberto Gutierrez, was trying to steer him in a certain direction, to weaponize what Page knew about Charles's background in order to paint him as a lost cause. It seemed like they were asking me for something I couldn't give them. Of course, as a prosecutor questioning a witness at sentencing, Gutierrez's goal was to show why Charles should be sentenced to death, not to get Page's genuine feelings about Charles. At one point, Gutierrez asked Paige about all the resources that had been spent trying to help this one kid. Here's the actor reading Gutierrez. The system, the state of Texas, spent thousands and thousands of dollars to try and help Charles Raby. Isn't that true? And one of the sad things about your job is that you tried to save them all. And you can't. Page told us he couldn't speak to whether Charles was innocent or guilty of murdering Edna Franklin. But he understands enough about the system to know that it's fallible. It just seemed like everything was a foregone conclusion. And why am I sitting there? And and I always like to think back because when I was when I, when I was Charles's age, maybe a little younger, I mean, I told you I grew up in Detroit and I got I was walking down the street with a friend one day and got arrested for a suspicion of armed robbery. And uh, they locked me in a cell. My parents were out of the country and I was I was 17 and they would they put me in a holding cell, tried to make me confess to a crime. And when I was sitting there giving answers, that's what it felt like to me that he, that, you know, here he is, we've got him, and he's going down for whatever he's going down for. I guess that's why I could relate a little bit to that. 
Page's dad was a juvenile probation officer. And when he got back to the city, he pulled the report of his son's arrest and found out that the cops had been looking for two black kids wearing jeans. And I said, how many people in Detroit could that be? You know, 300,000, <laughs> you know, and uh, <laughs> and so when I see Charles, you know, it, it's just like, here's this kid that maybe he did something, you know, maybe, I don't know what he did. I haven't seen the evidence, but they certainly got him for for what they said, and he was going to be convicted. And I guess he had already been convicted at that point. Carrie Ann remembers being at court every day until it was time for her to testify. When she finally took the stand, she just tried to concentrate on the task at hand. I think if anything, I probably felt, you know, a little bit sad for him because it's got to be hard having your mom there, not only my mom, but his mom. And his whole family, you know, just just knowing that what had happened, you can't take it back. You can't undo who you were. We asked about how she reacted to hearing that Charles had been sentenced to death. She described mixed feelings, but mostly sadness for their young daughter. I cried. And I, I cried for, you know, for our daughter for knowing that someday that, you know, regardless of how well I try to raise her, there's going to be an absence and sadness and, 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 you know, a horrific reality. Days after Charles was sentenced to death, Carrie Ann went to see him one last time. He was in jail, awaiting transfer to prison. She took their daughter with her. Carrie Ann's description of this visit was by far the most surprising part of our conversation. And I remember asking him, and these exact words, why did you do that? Why did you do it? And we had our hands touching on the glass, and Amber had her little hand up there, and and he shrugged and shook his head, and he said, I don't know, I, I just snapped. And we just sat and cried and cried and cried. This was the first time we'd ever heard about this. That Charles had supposedly confessed, again, after he was convicted. But it turns out she'd told this story before. Years after she left Texas, Carrie Ann caught wind that Charles was fighting his conviction, claiming he was innocent. It was one of those things where my mom reached out to me and she said, you know, he's fighting this, he's, he's trying to say he's innocent, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, he's not innocent. You know, and, and I said, he, he actually told me, he confessed to me. We talked about this. Her mother had apparently read about this in the newspaper in 2009, after the DNA results came back pointing away from Charles. The article included the name of the Houston prosecutor who was handling the case. It was Lynn Hardaway, the prosecutor who argued to the Court of Criminal Appeals that the DNA results linking the murder to an unknown male weren't important. So Carrie Ann called her. She wanted Hardaway to know that Charles had confessed to her. 
We sent the Harris County DA's office a public information request asking for records related to this call. We got a recording of a conversation from June 2009, which seemed to be the phone call Carrie Ann told us about. Hi, Carrie. This is Lynn Hardaway at the Harris County District Attorney's Office. Oh, hi. Sorry for the babbling message. Oh, no, that's okay. I understand. The phone call confirmed Carrie Ann's recollection about talking with Hardaway. So I started asking him. And in the beginning, he wouldn't answer me. This is when you went to visit him at the jail, right? Uh And he kept shaking his head, like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And then I I just said to him, we're going to leave, because I wanted to hear him say he did it. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me, and he said, I said, why did you feel like you had to kill her? Why? She, She was old, and I was just talking to him, and he just broke down and started crying and said, I just cracked. I snapped. Wow. Did you ask him anything else? I asked him a lot, but that's the only answer he gave. The only other thing that he mentioned was rinsing blood off his hands. That's it. In in dirty water. So he didn't deny that he did it? He did not deny it. Okay. That's good. He did not deny it. Obviously, we had to write to Charles to ask him about this. You caught me completely off guard with this one, he wrote back. He said the exchange with Carrie Ann never happened. He was pretty pissed off and worried about how this story might be used against him in the future. He remembered Carrie Ann and his daughter coming to visit. He also recalled something Carrie Ann had described to us, his lawyer, Felix Cantu, coming in during the visit and standing behind Carrie Ann as they talked. But he swore he never said anything about his case to Carrie Ann. We asked Cantu about this, but he didn't remember the visit. For much of their call, Carrie Ann and Hardaway discussed the potential impact of the DNA results on Charles's case. They also discussed the serology work from 1992 that Charles's defense hadn't known about. Well, okay, the way that I'm not a scientist and I don't really understand it, the bad thing about the blood evidence is this other blood type is showing up. But the so it blood... couldn't be a mix of her blood and his blood making some weird strain, no. right? No. No. Hardaway acknowledged that this evidence could make a difference for Charles. But I don't know what the judge is going to do. Um, I don't know. I just don't know. But you know what? What you have told me could be very helpful. Hardaway asked Carrie Ann if she would be willing to give an affidavit recounting her story about the jail visit. Carrie Ann agreed, and eventually traveled to Houston to give a video statement. We'd reached out to Hardaway for an interview weeks before we ever talked to Carrie Ann. She's now in private practice. She responded quickly, saying she'd be happy to talk with us about her work on Charles's case as soon as the following morning. We followed up with a few more details about what we hoped to cover, specifically the DNA evidence that didn't match Charles. She responded the next morning, and she'd changed her tune. When I said that I would speak to you about Mr. Raby's case, I meant on an informal, non-recorded basis, she wrote. She said that if we wanted to do a, quote, formal interview, she would need to prepare. That would take time. And, it turned out, money. I require a retainer to proceed with a formal interview, she wrote. My rate is $250 an hour, and I estimate five hours of prep time. 
In other words, we'd have to pay her $1,250. Needless to say, that wasn't happening. And as someone who dealt with the media as part of her job, she must have known that we don't pay for interviews. We asked if she'd be willing to answer some questions via email instead. Sure, she said. Hardaway told us that she remembered meeting with Carrie Ann and taking her statement. But she said she never used it in any legal proceedings. We found this odd. Hardaway had argued in court, first in Houston and then at the Court of Criminal Appeals, that the DNA evidence wasn't strong enough to overturn Charles's conviction. And she leaned heavily on his confession as proof that the DNA didn't matter and he was clearly guilty. So it would seem reasonable that Hardaway would have seized upon Carrie Ann's story as further evidence of his guilt. Why wouldn't she use Carrie Ann's account if she found it credible? We asked Hardaway why she never used Carrie Ann's statement. Hardaway said she wasn't sure whether she had the statement at the time. In fact, she did. Carrie Ann provided her statement in August 2009, as the DNA hearing in Houston was still going on. And Hardaway didn't go before the Court of Criminal Appeals until 2013. Regardless, she said that Carrie Ann's story didn't fit into what she was trying to do. All of this left us with a lot of questions. Carrie Ann's story about the jail visit was obviously unsettling. She clearly believes it happened exactly as she remembers. She even told Hardaway that if there was a recording of the visit, Hardaway could confirm her account. Those records are long gone, of course, so there's no proof one way or another. Regardless, we don't see why Carrie Ann would make this up. But also, why would Charles deny this if it happened? He's never denied that he confessed. And he's been straightforward about questioning his own memory of the night Franklin was murdered. He even said that, for a time, he wondered whether he might actually have done it. And this brings us back to the whole problem of memory. When we recall a memory, we aren't just pulling this neat package of information from our brain. Instead, we're pulling lots of details back together and basically reconstructing the memory from scratch. That's Kara Moore. She's a professor of psychology at Oklahoma State University. She studies memory. In reality, our memories reflect a blend of information contained from our memory, our existing knowledge, our expectations, our beliefs, and information derived from other sources. As a result, no memory is a perfect recall of the past. We've seen this play out over and over again in our reporting. People will tell the cops one thing shortly after a crime. And research tells us that these are the most reliable statements. But by the time a case goes to trial, those statements have often evolved, sometimes in really dramatic ways, with lots of new details. The thing is, the older the memory is, the more likely it is to be corrupted. 
because memories get weaker over time. And memories of traumatic events are especially prone to distortion, Moore said, because mental imagery and imagining also play a role in the reconstruction of memory. She gave us an example involving Desert Storm veterans. Researchers found that over time, the number of traumatic events they remembered experiencing during combat multiplied. The most important finding from that study is that the majority of the changes were from no, I did not experience any of these types of events, to yes, I did experience one or more of these types of events. All the factors that impact memory, time and trauma in particular, are at play in this case. The reality is, when it comes to this case, everybody is an unreliable narrator. At least insofar as their memories are concerned. The only thing we know for sure is what the science tells us. The serology and DNA evidence point to a different killer. Next time on Murderville, Texas, the other suspect. I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't have DNA tested Edward Bain. Why wouldn't they have done that? He was in jail for assaulting someone, an old lady or something, which certainly is weird. I know he was eliminated, and it was because uh, he had an alibi. He he was somewhere else, could not have killed Mrs. Franklin. It was not with me. Yeah, and I didn't even know that that had ever been said because um, no one ever asked me. Murderville, Texas is a production of The Intercept and First Look Media. Andrea Jones is our story editor. Julia Scott is senior producer. Truk Wynn is our podcast fellow. Laura Flynn is supervising producer. Fact-checking by Miri Jesuthasen. Special thanks to Jack Desidoro and Holly DeMuth for additional production assistance. Voice acting on this episode by Vincent Thomas. Our show was mixed by Rick Kwan with original music by Zach Young. Legal review by David Brelo. Executive producers are Roger Hodge and Christy Grussman. For The Intercept, Betsy Reed is the editor-in-chief. I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. You can read show transcripts and see photos at theintercept.com slash murderville. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Liliana Segura and at chronic underscore Jordan. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash donate. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.